Father, we know that all of your scripture is, is breathed out uh, by your very mouth, inspired and given to us, Lord, for our edification and our encouragement. And Lord, although in one sense, uh, many of us come with different burdens and, and we're not sure how 1 Timothy 3 and elders and deacons matter to us, God, we know that since you are wise and what you've given to us in your word is good for us, that it could still bless us in some way. So God, would you do that by the power of your spirit for the glory of your son? In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we get ready to receive nominations for elders and deacons here at Cornerstone, we're going to spend time considering what the Bible has to say about elders and deacons. Uh, we need to be informed. Now, I admit uh, my own personal fears that this is not the most exciting sermon topic, nor maybe the most memorized Bible passage. I'm not sure how many revivals have broken out in the history of God's people when this sermon was preached. But nonetheless, this is in God's word. It's given for our instruction. It's given for our guidance. We would do well and be wise to listen. God didn't leave the church in the dark when it came to how the church should figure out its government and its leadership. God didn't simply say, do what's practical and do what works and I'll leave it up to you. Instead, he speaks to us through passages like 1 Timothy. But here's the thing. God speaks to us, he gives us guidance and instruction, but he does not reveal to us the names of future elders and deacons through the clouds in the sky or through the sand on the beaches. You know, I recently heard from a pastor friend who is serving at a church that's going through a search process, and he told me of one applicant who had the audacity to write to this search committee and told them, stop your search. Your prayer has been answered. God has revealed to me I am to be your new senior pastor. How do you respond to such a thing? Well, thank God he didn't tell us that. Well, God has given officers to the church as a gift, but he gives them to us through the ordinary means, which means for us, prayerfully and wisely discerning who we believe are to be men fit for this office, nominating them, and then voting them in. If God chooses to use members of the church to make that decision, then it's important for us to understand, to be informed by the Bible, what is it we are looking for? This is not a popularity contest. So what then is it? What is an elder? What is a deacon called to do and to be? Now, I admit, this is often difficult for many of us who have grown up in a church where there are certain assumptions and expectations and stereotypes about these offices. For example, some wrongly assume that an elder must be somebody old or older. You know, I've heard of churches and people who, who have perfectly skipped or skipped by perfectly godly candidates because they thought they were too young to be an elder. But the Bible never mentions an age requirement. In fact, if you remember Paul's words to Timothy, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. You know, Timothy was an elder in his church and age did not disqualify him. So are you wiser than the apostle Paul in thinking someone is too young to be an elder? You know, others think an elder must be rich. An elder needs to have money and needs to give to the church generously in order to be considered. And sadly, I've heard men say to me and joke that they're not ready to be elders because they aren't making enough money. I've also heard people say, I don't want to be an elder because I don't want to have to buy the church something expensive. <laughs> I've heard... 
people believe that the elder's job is simply to execute the will of the pastor, to be yes men in the church and to do as the pastor says. And although I wish that were true sometimes, that's simply not what the Bible teaches. And the same goes for deacons. We have misconceptions, misunderstanding about deacons as well. You know, some assume deacons, they administer um, to the hands-on needs of the church, all practical skills, and so the spiritual qualifications don't really matter for them. But Paul here says they must be dignified. They must hold to the mystery of the faith. They are to prove themselves blameless. These are all very spiritual qualifications. Deacons are to be spiritual men. You know, others view the deacon office as a stepping stone to be an elder. It's almost a rite of passage, a door every elder must walk through. Now, I want to make this very clear. Being a deacon is not a step to being an elder. A deacon is its own calling, its own separate office. It's not a means to an end. It is an end itself. And so we're filled with all of these misunderstandings, misconceptions, stereotypes, assumptions about these offices, but we need to submit them to the Bible and ask God, help us understand what you've revealed so that our church can reflect that. And so I want to consider today's text looking at four things about elders and deacons. And friends, I have to admit, this is the longest sermon I've ever written for Cornerstone. And in fact, it's the longest sermon I've ever written, period. So... If you have a Red Bull, I advise you take one now. If not, good luck. Here are four points. We're going to look at the offices, the duties, the qualifications, and the hope. The offices, the duties, the qualifications, and the hope. So here's our first point, the offices. The offices. Now, there are two recognized offices in the New Testament. They are elder and deacon. Now, in the Bible, you may have seen another word that's translated overseer, but that's not a third office. That's the same office as elder. You see, the word for elder is the Greek word presbyteros, which is where we get Presbyterian from. And then there's another word, the word for overseer, which is episkopos, which is where we get Episcopalian from. But both these words for elder and overseer, presbyteros and episkopos, are used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office. Actually, even in 1 Timothy, in chapter 3, Paul calls him episkopos. Chapter 5, he calls him presbyteros. They're the same office, same duties. So two offices. So already in verse 1, we see the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So that's the first office. Then you get this office called deacon, which in verse 8, Paul says deacons likewise must be, and then he goes on to describe the office of deacon. Now, some of you go, okay, I've heard that. So elders, I've heard of them. Deacons, I've heard of them. Well, what about pastors? Isn't that a third office? Well, Presbyterians understand that the pastor is also an elder of the church. He is not a greater elder. He's not a lesser elder. He's not a higher elder or a lower elder. He is simply an elder with a different uh, special calling to teach and to preach. In our denomination, we're the PCA. Uh, we make this distinction by calling uh, pastors teaching elders which is distinct from the elders we have called ruling elders. Now, both are elders. The Bible gives them qualifications. But if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it has this verse. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And Paul here is saying that there are all elders, they all rule, but there's one group of elders that are given to the specific task of preaching and teaching, and they are called teaching elders. 
The opening nomination, uh, opening of nominations today is not for teaching elder, it's for ruling elder. So we have elders, teaching and ruling, and we have deacons. Where do the deacons come from? Well, in Acts chapter 6, we see the story. When the church was uh, beginning and it was flourishing and a lot of people were coming to the faith, there were certain issues that arose in the church that required special attention. And so uh, the office of deacon was created. Let me read for us this incident in Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the, num the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see that phrase there, serve tables. We're not going to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. That actually comes from the Greek word uh, diakonine, which is where we get diaconate or deacon from. So simply put, a deacon is a server of tables. And this incident shows us that the office of deacon was created as a separate and distinct office from the work of the apostles, which was to pray and to proclaim God's word. Now, in today's church, we don't have apostles, but the work of the apostles continues in terms of preaching and praying through the work of the elders. So these deacons are created with a whole different set of tasks and duties and concerns that are different from the elders. So elder, deacon, elder, deacon. And the reason I highlight this is for this reason, because it has a few implications. One, these are the only two ordained offices in the church. Now, of course, there are many ways of serving the church, and I am so thankful for all of you church members who actually sometimes, you know, serve in such incredible and humbling ways. You sacrifice of your time and your energy and your resources, and frankly, to be honest, if you didn't volunteer and you didn't serve the way you did, a lot of the ministries in church would just stop. So although you are necessary and needed in the church, your service is so appreciated and you help build the church, the scriptures say that there are only two offices that are ordained, set apart with the laying on of hands. That's elder and deacon. Now, the second implication then is elder and deacon are distinct offices. One's not lesser and one's not greater. Let's be honest. Some of you think an elder is higher up than a deacon. It is not. It is not a degree of who is better or more significant. Each office requires its own special calling. It requires its own faithfulness to fulfill its duties. And when people view the office of deacon as less than the office of elder, there's going to be serious negative consequences. And one of the consequences is this. Somebody in the church is called to be an elder, that the Lord has anointed them and they are to be an elder. But because you think a deacon is lower and you need to become a deacon to be an elder, then all of a sudden they need to start jumping through these hoops. And God has called them to be an elder, but no, they can't be an elder yet. And so you're making them do deacon work. But their calling is not to be a deacon. So they're an awful deacon. Then you look at the work they're doing as deacon and you go, they're an awful deacon. They're going to make an awful elder. No, friends, if they're called to be an elder, then nominate them to be an elder. It is not jumping through the hoops. Another consequence is, if you are an ordained elder, 
and you stay an elder for a very long time, unfortunately, some people see that as a shameful thing. That guy's been an elder for 20 years, so he's never going to make it to be a deacon. And sometimes even deacons feel that way. I've met deacons who have been deacons for 25 years, and they kind of put their head down and say, oh, I've never been voted to be an elder. I always get, you know, I fail the vote. But both views fail to understand that the deacon is its own unique calling from God. Many are called to a life of being a deacon, and that's a wonderful privilege. And the third effect is the way that people nominate and the way they vote on officers. Because if you see leadership as this kind of pipeline of becoming a deacon and then becoming an elder, one, you're going to pass over and pass by qualified, godly men who are called to be elders simply because they're not deacons yet. You're, you're going to pass by them. Other times, you're going to nominate and vote a deacon to be an elder because you think, oh, he's been a deacon for so long, the next step is to become an elder. Well, without understanding these distinct offices, one, you're going to pass by a great elder. You're going to miss out on a great elder who can build up the church. If you nominate a deacon to be an elder just because he's been a deacon for so long, you're going to lose a great deacon. And then third, if you do that, you might get an unqualified elder and you're just going to hurt the church. There's a lot of negative consequences when you don't understand that these are distinct offices God has called men to. Now, the offices are different, and the reason they're different is because they have different duties. And this is our second point, the duties of elder and deacon. Paul focuses here in 1 Timothy more on qualifications, spiritual qualifications, but we see some hints at duties. So look at verse 4 and 5 about elders. Paul writes, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And then we already saw in 1 Timothy 5, let elders rule well. So, so in this picture, what we see is that the elders care for God's church by managing and ruling the church and her elders. Ruling and managing the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 actually gives us a better picture of what this looks like. It says here in 1 Peter, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When we say elder, what do you think of? And it is my goal in the hope uh, for our church, when you hear elder, for you to think shepherd. In fact, many of you may not know this, but when we have our session meetings, do you know what the first hour of our meeting is dedicated to? It's not to the business of the church. It's not to uh, making decisions of the church. It's to praying for the church. And do you know what we title that? Shepherding. Because elders are called to shepherd. It's the work of them to care for the flock of Christ by spiritually leading and guiding its members to greater faithfulness and greater Christ-likeness. Hebrews 13 then says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Being an elder is a serious business because one day we will stand before the Lord and give an account for how we've watched over your souls. 
And so it's with the goal to care for and promote the spiritual interests of the church and her members that the elders are called to rule and to shepherd. So all decisions made in the church and for the church are done with this goal in mind, to achieve this goal, that one day every member will be presented before Christ in greater Christ-likeness, in greater faithfulness. And this is why Paul likens the duty of an elder using parental language. He uses household language, and just as a good father always makes decisions for the interests of the whole family to promote the growth and the health of his children, never pushing his own selfish agenda or selfish ambition, always considering the children first, so too an elder must put the interests of the church and her members before his own. And he does this as he serves the church and considers how the church is doing spiritually. This is why it's elders who um, receive members through membership and baptism. It's elders who lead the church in worship, pray for the church, visit people in their homes, counsel as needed, and ultimately set an example for God's people. So, if this is the duty of elders, here's, I think, a few things for you to consider as you reflect on this question, on who should be an elder. One, do I see this person shepherding the souls of others and my own? When I think about this person, do I see them shepherding my soul and the souls of others? Two, do I sense in this person a call to know, lead, protect, and feed the congregation in wisdom, love, and toward greater Christ-likeness? Do I see them knowing, leading, protecting, and feeding the congregation? And then third, am I able to entrust myself and submit to their leadership? This, of course, is one of the vows, the fifth vow in our membership vows. Do I see them as someone I could submit to, someone I could entrust myself to? So that's what you gotta be thinking about as you're thinking about elders. All right, what about deacons? Well, the deacon duties are in the name itself. Right, deacons are servers of tables, as Acts 6 tells us. So whereas elders are called shepherds, deacons are called to serve. Elders are called to shepherd, deacons are called to serve. And this duty is going to take on many practical and physical uh, and, and material uh, expressions rather than, than the spiritual expression that the elders take care of. So the Bible actually doesn't lay out all the specifics of what a deacon does. Now, typically in a church, the areas of need that the deacon does is things like handle finances, take care of facilities, uh, respond to the physical and material needs of the church, and really serve in any area that frees the elder up to do the work of spiritual care. You know, our, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, our book of church order beautifully puts it like this. It says about the deacon, the office is one of sympathy and service. I love this, sympathy and service. And then it says, uh, it is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. To minister to these needs. You know, the real heart of the work of the deacons is to assist the elders by serving the needs of the congregation in every other way that the elders can't and they don't. So basically, the deacons serve in order to free the elders to shepherd. That's their relationship. And if this is what deacons do, then as you pray about who should I nominate, remember they are called servers of tables. So here are three questions to ask yourself. Do I see in this person a humble and servant-oriented heart? 
If a deacon cannot serve, he should not be a deacon. I'll just, if a deacon, if you do not see a deacon serving, he will not end up serving as a deacon. Very simply put. Two, have I already seen them serving in the church and do they do it well with joy and in humility? Not, does this person look like they could possibly serve? Are they serving? Do you see them serving? That qualifies them. Three, would they helpfully assist the elders to shepherd by responsibly assuming tasks of service? If their job is to serve in the ways to free the elders up to shepherd, will they responsibly serve? And will they actually help the elders or will they only drain the elders? These are serious questions to think about. So those are the duties. These are th some questions to think about. But what are the actual qualifications? What does Paul actually lay out? And this is our third point. The qualifications. And we see they're, they're if character and spiritual in nature. Paul, when he talks in 1 Timothy and he lays out all of the qualifications, you, actually, if you read it slowly, he only talks about one skill, one gift, one ability, and everything else is character-related. Even for the deacons, and that's because both deacons and elders uh, serving as shepherding and, and, and as, as deaconing is a spiritual matter. Because in Timothy, what, you saw, what we see happening earlier is that um, the spiritual health of the church is tied to the spiritual health of its leaders. There were some uh, unhealthy leaders in this church, uh, men who were spreading false doctrine and false teaching, and it was ruining the church. And Paul saw that. And Paul doesn't write and therefore say, oh, these guys are teaching wrong things. Oh, therefore, when you do eldership, make sure they know their theology, make sure they know their apologetics and their church history, and make sure they know their Old Testament. That's not what he writes. He says, these guys are destroying the church. Now when you pick elders, make sure their character is right and in line. Now it's so sad if you look at today's church, and, and I hope that none of you uh, love reading this stuff, but in our evangelical world today, there are churches left and right falling apart, being ripped apart. And you know what all of that, almost all of them, if you boil them down to, you know what it is? Unhealthy church leadership. All of these pastors failing in churches that are 10,000, 15,000 congregants big, crumbling down. Why? Because of the leadership having unqualified men of character and spirituality. Now, Often, when we pick members, uh, leaders, who do we think of? We, we think of men of, of great charisma and, and influence and, and eloquence and great skill, and we fail to remember their spiritual nature. That's what Paul spends his time on. And so I want to talk then about this. But before I get there, i got to get ready to say this. I don't want to be offensive. However, the office of elder and deacon, as I've already implied, is for men only. It's for men only. Now, I know that some of that rubs us the wrong way. Some of you may be very uncomfortable with that. But I believe it's here in the scriptures. First, Paul assumes it when he says these qualifications and he says they are to be men leading their household and faithful to their wives. It's already assumed um, to be only for men. Secondly, in chapter 2, Paul does write, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, I know for some people this kind of just brings something out in them, a gut reaction that you may disagree. Now listen, none of Paul's words are meant to put women down. 
In fact, Paul and Jesus speak of women in the highest possible ways. You can't read the corpus of Paul's letters, you can't read the Gospels about the life of Jesus and conclude that they were misogynistic. You would have to be blind to the evidence of Paul's writings and Jesus' interactions with women. So when Paul writes a statement like this, he's not talking about a woman's worth or significance or value or even ability. There's a famous story about Elizabeth Elliot who uh, gave a lecture at Gordon-Conwell Seminary to a bunch of men who were training to be pastors and she boldly said in front of them all, I could out-preach any one of you. And they all knew she could. <laughs> But it wasn't, she said, her calling. It wasn't the roles that God had given to her as a woman to preach. So it's not about ability. What Paul is talking about here is a difference in calling and roles. It's not a matter of better or worse. It's simply a difference in calling and responsibility. Now, I know some of you read this and you love the Bible, you love God. This still rubs you the wrong way. And then you say, well, you know what it is? This is culturally informed. At Paul's time, you know, women's roles in society, you know, it was a certain way. But, you know, our times are progressive. We're more open-minded. We're not as, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. And so things are so different now. But if you think that way, you're actually misunderstanding Paul's argument. Because the reason Paul cites is that women are not to have this spiritual authority over men, not because they're better, not because they're worse, not, none of that. He says, it's because of Adam and Eve. He goes back to the garden, and he's, what Paul's doing when he goes back to the garden is he's anticipating your argument. Right? Paul wrote, actually, you know, he, he wrote with 2019 in mind, because he's basically saying this. He says, listen, men, women are not, to, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. And then lest you go, wait, 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 Paul goes, no. Before you say this is a cultural thing, I'm telling you it's not. It's not a cultural thing, it's a created thing. I'm going back to the garden, before culture. I'm going back to Adam and Eve, the way God created things before sin even entered the world. And so Paul's already stopping you. He's anticipating your objection. And he's saying, therefore, men, only men, are called to this ordained office of elder and deacon. Now, some of you agree, and you're going, okay, well, he's you know, getting really into this. Uh, but I just want to convey that um, and, know, and let you know that you know, the Bible is not um, just saying this because of, of its cultural uh, setting, but it's doing this because this is uh, what God has deemed from creation. You know, and so at, here at Cornerstone, uh, I'm going to put the cards up front. Some of you may never come back after this, but here at Cornerstone, we believe that the Bible teaches this, and so our nomination for elder and deacon is only open to men. Now, what about all the other qualifications? And there's a whole bunch, and we're going to go through all of them. So first for elders, but, but quickly. So it's okay. First for elders. Verse 2 begins, an overseer must be above reproach. It does not say must be above approach. <laughs> reproach. You should be able to go to your elders. Uh, above reproach. Listen, that doesn't mean sinless. <laughs> above reproach means... Um, that they are to have a blameless reputation. It means their, con their conduct of life shouldn't be contrary to that of a follower of Christ. You shouldn't see the way a, an elder believes in going, is they even a Christian? As soon as that's the case, no. Even if there's a hint of a question, they are not qualified. So it doesn't mean sinless. It just means that their lives are not lived in contradiction to that of following Christ. The next one is the husband of one wife. Now this is important. This cannot mean the elder must be married. 
singleness does not disqualify somebody from being an elder. How could Paul, an unmarried man, who served and preached about an unmarried savior, demand that marriage be a qualification? Because then he would disqualify himself and his words would have no authority. So this qualification doesn't mean you have to be married. It means that if you are married, you must be faithful to your wife with an unquestionable steadfastness. Because a man unfaithful in his marriage is a man who does not understand the gospel. Why? Because marriage points us to the gospel. So husband of one wife. Next, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. These are all marks of a disciplined man. And here the idea is that if you cannot rule uh, over even yourself, how in the world can you rule over others? If you can't put your own desires in check, how can you help another person? So an elder must be a disciplined man, disciplined in life, disciplined in spirituality, not giving in all the time to desires and passions that are at work in him. Third, hospitable. This comes from the Greek word meaning uh, love for strangers. Now, I think a lot of people think hospitable simply means opening up your home to invited guests. Now, that's true, but it's not limited to that. Because I've met a ton of people, and I'm sure you have too, people who host, but they're not hospitable. Hosp hospitality, being hospitable is a practice, uh, but it's also a hard attitude. It means drawing near to others, moving toward them, opening up your heart as well as your house in order to make people feel at home. That's what true hospitality is. Opening up not just your house, but opening up your heart to make them feel at home. Next, able to teach. All right. In the midst of all of these character qualifications, there's only one skill, one gift required, and that's very important. It's so important that Paul says, of all things they're called to do, elders must be able to do this. Now, before you go, wait a minute, and you think a little bit more about this, and, and you go, whoa, then why is there a thing called a teaching elder, and you know, why ruling elder? What's that distinction? Well, remember that Paul said that there are some men who are called to labor for preaching and teaching. And so what he's saying is, there's going to be elders who are really good at it, and that, therefore they're going to make their livelihood out of it. And so he is saying that not all elders are called to be these great teachers. Not everyone's going to teach like R.C. Sproul. But what he is saying is every elder should be able, meaning capable. Meaning they're competent in two areas. Every elder should be competent in two areas. Content and communication. Meaning the elder must know enough and then be able to speak it enough in order to teach and build up the church and her members in sound doctrine and to protect the church and guard the church against false doctrine. So elders, they don't need to be seminary trained and they don't need to be the most eloquent speakers, but capable in content and communication enough to speak God's word of truth in order to help and encourage church members. So think about that. Next, not a drunkard. Not giving in to drunkenness. Now here is where some people go, oh, I'm never going to be an elder. <laughs> well, <laughs> before you go, you read that, you're not a drunkard. Oh, I can't be an elder. First of all, remember Ephesians 5. No Christian is called to be drunk. No Christian is not okay to be drunk. 
You're never excused. So then why does Paul write this if not getting drunk is, a, is a, something all Christians should do? And I believe it's because Paul is, is heightening this call to elders. Paul's repeating it because he's saying for elders, this is so important. You can give in, I mean, we're all sinners, so we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to you know, fail in these areas, but, but elders cannot fail in this area. Here's why. If elders are called to shepherd the flock and you're intoxicated, you're drunk, and you get a phone call for an emergency counseling, or you're somewhere out in public and there's an opportunity to evangelize and share the gospel, or you have to go visit somebody in their house or go visit somebody in an emergency in the hospital and you're too drunk to fulfill your duties, then you will fail as a shepherd. That's why, specifically, first of all, no, it's not okay for Christians to be drunk, Ephesians 5. But particularly elders, because they are called to shepherd, must always be ready to shepherd. And intoxication will take that away. Now, I want us to know, um, Jesus and other Bible writers, they never require total abstinence from alcohol. It, I, it's unbiblical to make that a law. And so if you are ever out at a restaurant and you see one of the elders drinking, you know, that doesn't disqualify them from being an elder. I mean, still let me know. But, uh, <laughs> but that does not disqualify them from their eldership. Again, it's a call to not be drunk and to give in to drunkenness. And of course, Paul will even apply this to deacons later on. Okay, next, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. These men are to love and to pursue unity. Always strive to honor and protect the weaker brother, the weaker sister. Always looking out for the least mature believer in the room. So not sowing seeds of division, not quarreling, but being gentle, pursuing, cultivating peace, harmony, love among others. Not a lover of money. This is the second deal breaker for a lot of people. <laughs> they read this one and say, okay, now I'm definitely not going to be an elder. Well, you know, later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's a statement made for all Christians, right? So, so, so no Christian should be uh, a lover of money. It's the root of all kinds of evil. But it's heightened for the application to elders because uh, the temporary earthly riches and pleasures of this world um, should not hold a grip on this kind of man. Rather, uh, generosity and sacrifice are his marks. Now, this does not mean that an elder cannot be wealthy, but it must mean that his wealth is not his identity. That he must use his wealth to serve others, to serve the kingdom for the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto his glory, not to serve himself, not to build his own kingdom. Next, he must manage his own household well with all dignity. Now, in verse 15, Paul's going to call the household of God, um, he's going to call the church the household of God, and basically he's saying, if a man can't uh, rule his own household well, how can he rule God's household? Right? An elder cannot be living in hypocrisy from his home life and his church life. They must be in similar accord to one another. In fact, the home life is more important because that's where nobody sees except for his family and God. And he must serve there with integrity and godliness and faithfulness so that when he goes to the church, those things are spilling out. I think a lot of elders think the other way. Oh, if I'm really godly at church, then when I go home, those things are going to spill out. No, if you're making those things up, you're putting on a show at church, all those godliness, 
forgiveness and patience and love and compassion come out, when you go home, you're empty. And so what comes out? Anger and rebuke and frustration and impatience. But at home, in your heart, is the garden in which those things are growing. When you go to church, the fruit of that will bear out into love for your congregants. Now, by, by, the, by the way, this verse, this qualification does not mean all the children of elders must be Christian. I think some people make that mistake and say, you know, he, that son, no, he's so wayward. He's not, he's not a Christian. He's disqualified to be an elder because he's not ruling his household well. No, first of all, only God can change hearts. Elders aren't God. They can't change people's hearts. However, I would say this. The elder cannot be the reason their child is not a believer. If the child says, my dad is such a hypocrite, Jesus teaches these things, but look at the way he lives, and that's the reason that they're not a Christian, then I would say a man is disqualified from being an elder. He is to parent well this man, to exhibit to his congregants something that is consistent to what he exhibits to his children, managing his own household well. He must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit. Now, we can't make this quantifiable, saying you must be a Christian for five years, ten years. We can't make that. But Paul's point is, they must be a spiritually mature man. Because we all know that the number of years that you attend church or the number of years you said you're a Christian does not equal maturity. Right? So being a Christian or being in the church does not qualify you necessarily. What Paul is saying, I believe, is that uh, you must have lived the Christian life long enough that what you say you believe and the way you actually live line up that they're in sync, that they're in accord, that one's not ahead of the other. Right? Be, not a recent convert means that you've lived the Christian life long enough that you've experienced the different seasons of the Christian life so that you can then speak in a shepherding way, a pastoral way into people's lives, to counsel them, to pray with them, to walk with them. Because Paul is saying the danger is when you know so much but your character isn't caught up, you'd be puffed up with conceit and therefore when you talk to people, you don't, sh you don't shepherd them, you suffocate them. So Paul says, be careful of that. And the last thing he says is you must be well thought of by outsiders. And it's very important that this is last. This, of course, is talking about his reputation, right? The watching world must see that he's giving good witness. But here's the thing. Paul puts this last because if you put this first, then what would every elder do? Live a life of hypocrisy. Oh, everyone's watching me, and so I need to live this way. Paul puts it last. Why? He says, if you're taking care of all of this internally, the watching world will see and they will think of you well. If you are really practicing these true character qualifications in your heart, that you don't actually need to worry about this last one because the world will just know. Okay, next. Deacons. Now, I'm not going to go through all the ones with the deacons. Um, some of them overlap. So deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not addicted to much wine, prove themselves blameless. The husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Those are all similarly uh, considered under the elder qualifications. I want to talk about three that are unique to the deacons. The first is not being double-tongued. Right? This means he's not prone to gossip, not having a loose tongue, a tongue that just speaks. Because deacons handle uh, people's private affairs, their personal uh, affairs, sensitive information, and so they should not be double-tongued. They shouldn't uh, foolishly go around sharing those things with others, but to keep it to themselves. Right? So if a deacon, uh, if you want to know, you know the hottest new gossip in the church, and you go to the deacon, you, got, you go to a guy you know, to figure that out, he's not called to be a deacon. Avoid such a man. Second, not greedy for dishonest gain. Right, since much of the diaconal role has to do with financial matters, he must not be uh, tempted to steal or to take advantage of the church um, 
He must not be tempted to use what is entrusted to him. Remember Judas? Remember when he rebuked that woman for breaking uh, the perfume and anointing uh, Jesus' feet all to honor Christ? And Judas had this selfish motivation where he wanted to prevent that act because he said, this is so much money, why would you do something for Jesus like this? You know, a deacon can't be so consumed with love for money that his decisions prevent Christ from being honored and people being helped. So deacon, not greedy for dishonest gain. And third, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Deacons are called to have sound doctrine. Although they're not called primarily to teach and their ministries are more about deeds than words, Paul says they need to know their Bibles, they need to know their theologies. Because if they are ordained to this office, then they are in a position of influence and leadership. And so they must be wholeheartedly committed to the truths of the gospel. In fact, if, you, if they hold to uh, the Bible, then the way they make their decisions will be influenced by their view of the Bible. So they serve with Bible in hand. Now, I just spent a lot of time on this, but I want to make this word a caution. These qualifications are impossible. I think the two elders are like, oh, thank God he said that. <laughs> These are impossible. All people are sinful and saved by grace alone. No man is yet perfect. No man can measure up to this. So if you take these qualifications as sort of a grid and you put them over any of our current elders or deacons, all of them will fail. Right? If you put them over any other person you're thinking to be nominated, then we won't ever nominate anybody. Everyone will be disqualified. Instead, we're looking for men who, by the Spirit of God at work in them, are pointed in the right direction and are living with an aspiration toward these things. Men who are making it their prayer that God would form and fashion them to make them this kind of man. And listen, they're not doing it in the hopes of getting nominated. They're not living this way in the hopes of becoming an elder or deacon. They're doing this because they are a son of God and a man after God's own heart. That's what we're looking for. Men who are evidencing these things, seeking godliness and righteousness, not seeking an office. And by the Spirit's wisdom, I believe that we can begin to identify all of the men who are like this, or by the Spirit's wisdom, we will identify none of the men who the Lord is readying or not readying to serve as an ordained office officer. That's the third point here is the last one, and this one will end quickly, the hope. The hope. Any and every earthly elder or deacon will fail because all of us are imperfect and flawed. And although elders and deacons are gifts to God's church, God's gifts to the church, they can never be the hope of the church. The church is not built on these men. And when these men are long gone, the church of Christ will persevere. Men, leaders, people are never the hope of the church. Only Jesus is. Do you know why? Because only Jesus is the true elder and only Jesus is the true deacon. Why? Because only Jesus is the true shepherd and only Jesus is the true servant. Jesus did what no man could do perfectly. He was a greater shepherd than any earthly shepherd could ever be. And this is why in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. This is why in John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
we're not supposed to look to our elders as our saviors. We must look for elders who look to the savior. You don't look to an elder to be the savior of the church. You look for elders who are looking to the savior. Men who have their eyes and their hearts fixed on him. They are the men that we want to be our shepherds. And as they are conformed into Christ's image, God will use them then to shepherd our church all for his glory. Jesus alone is our hope. Second, Jesus is a greater servant than any deacon could ever be. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, for it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, diakonos, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the great servant. This is why we don't look to deacons to be our saviors. We look for men to be deacons who look to the savior. And as their lives are centered on him and shaped by him, as they are conformed into his image, they will be the types of servants who, like Christ, give of themselves for the good of others. And so, friends, as you begin to pray, and, and, and I urge you to pray about this before you nominate qualified men, remember, they are not the object of your hope. Only Christ is. But this is how the gospel works. When you stop looking for earthly elders and earthly deacons to, to shepherd you perfectly and to serve the church perfectly, when you believe and you understand that these can only be met in the true elder and the true deacon, the true shepherd and the true servant, Jesus Christ, it will actually free the elders and the deacons to serve better. Why? Because when you believe the gospel and they believe the gospel, it'll take the weight off of them, the expectation on them to be this perfect person because they know they're not. It's Christ alone. And satisfied in that with greater joy and freedom then they can give themselves to the cause of shepherding and serving. As long as you forget to look at Jesus and you look to these men, you're putting so much pressure on them. As long as these men refuse to look at Christ and look to themselves and they will live with this pressure and they will always fail. But the gospel frees both the church and these men as they all, as we all look to the Savior, the shepherd and the great servant that then this true work, the work of the officers can begin um, to establish, to be established in our church. This is a really exciting time in the church. Uh, as you can tell, I'm really excited about it. I'm very um, passionate, and I hope you are too as we get ready for this. So let's pray during the nomination process until the end of the month. Uh, as we just learned, let's pray. Let's pray for what? That in this process, God's name would be hallowed that God's kingdom will come, and that God's will be done in cornerstone as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to open up your word, and although, uh, Father, it is a, a tough word, tough to swallow, we know that it was written and given to us for our benefit, for the guidance of the church. And so give to us a humble posture to receive uh, your word, Give to us a humble mind so that our expectations and assumptions about what an elder and deacon is would be uh, challenged and shaped. I pray, God, now for uh, our elders, Moon, Chang, and Sam Hong. I pray for our deacons, Suyun and Jong and Dan and Rock, that they would be men who set their eyes on Christ Jesus. And as we look forward, Lord, to nominating the next elders and deacons, that they would be men who are also looking to Jesus, that he alone would be our church's vision, our church's hope. Set our eyes on Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Receive the benediction. 
Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the true shepherd and great servant, and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear the words of dismissal? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.